This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. You can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Oh, a magnificent goal from Darren Huckabee! Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin Will He Score. I'm Chris Skoll. Joining me, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And a man with more homemade VHS videos than Janet Bruce, wife of Steve Bruce, it's Michael Marden. <laughs> hello. hello. Why did I say hello to that as well? I was just enjoying the Steve Bruce thing. Sorry, Michael. Um, how are we both? Very, very well. We yeah, should good. talk about Steve Bruce, shouldn't we? Yeah. We've got to talk about the fact, um, as Ivo Graham tweeted, that we should enjoy the period where... Steve Bruce is the manager of the richest football club in the world. <laughs> I'd love to astonishing. Know. I'd love to know what he really thinks. Yeah, would you be pleased in that situation? No. Is there part of you going, I've got a fortune to play with here? No. Or are you just like, I'm I'm out. I've I've had this exact thing, I'll say exact thing, similar thing. When it happens on Football Manager, when you get taken over and you know that your reputation isn't big enough, you're just thinking, well, I'm getting sacked here. I'm just... I'm, I really I'm, just I'm, yeah. on Football Manager. You get taken over and it'll be a team, team in the championship and you're three years into your managerial career and you think, well, Allegri's getting linked to my job, so there is absolutely no way this semi-professional footballer from Shanklin on <laughs> White is keeping hold, of, keeping hold of these Saudi billions. I'm going to say it. We should relate it back to two things. One, uh, we will come to, is what would Steve Barnes make of it? But two, football owners weren't as bad in the 90s as we thought, were they? Dan McCauley, who we had at Plymouth, who we really hated, he just didn't flash the cash for Neil Warnock. He had no, he had no human rights abuses. <laughs> no. It's just about football owners back in the day, they'd like print, print shop owners. West Ham's owner, Terry yeah. Brown, owned a caravan park. That's how he made oh. his money. That would be a good thing, and not that we need more correspondence, because obviously we're getting a lot of good correspondence in lockdown. But football owners who made their money in the most bizarre businesses would be... Um, I'd like, we'd love to hear from those. Um, you have it like now. Like, the idea of a country taking over a football team is 
Yeah. It's mad, isn't it? So, like, if you think about who owned the main clubs, what did Martin Edwards do? But you say that about yeah. chairman. You don't know that Jack Walker didn't, a body that David Batty found in the, um, in the pair of houses. Maybe that was a reporter from the Blackburn Gazette and he just had him whacked. Yeah. Right, uh, but we should discuss what would Steve Barnes make of it. What do you think Steve Barnes would make of it? Steve Barnes right now is fawning over his new Saudi owners. Just do look at think? the way he sucked up and swooned over Sir Lawrence. Imagine his face when the new chairman rolls up in a sort of gold-plated Rolls Royce. <laughs> but on the other hand of it, Steve Barnes, if he sniffs a crime that has gone unpunished, he does tend to investigate. And I worry that Steve Barnes, if he thought his owner was involved in bad stuff, would get in the drag and cross the M62 to try and find out who's actually uh, done these crimes. Steve Barnes, completely naked, running across some sand dunes. (laughs) The fourth book is here. I think I know what he'd do. I think he would pretend to be loyal to the new regime whilst quietly undermining them with the, the grand master plan to reinstall Sir Lawrence on his throne at the end of it. <laughs> like playing both sides off the other, but no one knows. No one knows what his full plan is right until the end. I think also there's there's an argument that while he was doing that, he'd also be caught in a six-pointer, a mid-table six-pointer, where he's considering <laughs> playing a new tactical system for no reason in, like, February. <laughs> um, okay, uh, shall we have some correspondence? Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Uh, we've had so much good correspondence that we um, shouldn't... Uh, we haven't got time to go back to Gladiators for more events. Let's just say uh, I can reveal that the Gladiators uh, won the Eliminator because, uh, in John Fashioner's words, it's an individual event. And Aston Villa are a great team, but the Gladiators are great individually. Would you like a name chain of 11 from John Paul Shanahan? Oh, wow. Yes. 11. Uh, I'd like to I see accept- someone try. Is this okay, the new Michael? best? Wow, here we go. You ready? Yeah. Stern John? Yeah. Can you guess where that's going? John Collins? Yeah. Collins John? Yeah. John Obi Mikel? Okay. Michael Stewart, yep. Stuart Elliott, Elliot Lee, Lee Martin, Martin Phillips, Philip Scott, Scott Thomas, Thomas Brolin. That's 11, and a lot of them I've never heard of, but he you know has what? given the years. I'm going to say it. It's I'll, I'll let him have Obi Mikel because it's only the one. Yeah. But that, that for me was like watching Denmark win Euro 92. <laughs> Like, he did it and they won it, but I, yeah, that's not for me. Where's the flair? That was boring. Eleven in a row is sensational. Yeah, not interested. Well, Elliot Lee, it's got in brackets, son of a 90s legend, so counts, question mark. I don't know who that is. Well, he's, uh, he used to play for West Ham, actually. Son of Rob oh, Lee. Oh, right. He's put at the end, was desperately trying to end on George and Adar for a final flourish. He <laughs> <laughs> yeah, needed yeah. it. <laughs> it needed it. I think Stuart Elliot, Elliot Lee, Lee Martin, Martin Phillips, Phillips, Scott, Scott Thomas is one of the most tedious pieces of play of all time. But I can't believe we're having a go at someone who's done the game really well. <laughs> yeah. And now we're having a go at them for playing it with no flair. <laughs> well, go away and think about that last one. And then I think we can accept it. George yeah. Graham. George Graham of the uh, 
Right. <laughs> so you know, I I did I because I don't go on Twitter. Uh, did they? Uh, how did sixty six go down? Was anyone angry? Because they only got one angry email about it. No, actually, I think there were quite a few people that agreed with you. That it was like oh. finally someone's articulated what I felt all along. Oh, that's good. I'm pleased because yeah. Simon Mustard has emailed in. He's not just called Simon Mustard, but he's put at the end, kind regards, S Mustard. Um, <laughs> I think I want more of these because he's got a controversial 90s take. And I really want to read this to Michael and see whether he, how much steam comes out of his ears. Not that I can see it. Controversial 90s take. I think this is I think this is correct. Do you know what? Michael, you're in charge of the name game. Chris, I'm going to put you in charge of whether we're allowing controversial 90s takes, okay? Right. Yeah. Peter Schmeichel got lobbed far too much to be considered <laughs> as good as people think he is. <laughs> <laughs> do you want the do you want yeah. the thinking? I mean, I, yeah. I I know I know there will be a highlights reel of him getting lobbed, but I'd love to I'd love someone to do the actual data digging and find. Yeah, but he got lobbed he was far. Too, he was too heavy to handle lobs, which, whilst advantageous in a one-on-one look big bollocks, um, <laughs> he didn't come off his line by default too much and get exposed. Oh, he'd come off his line by default too much and get exposed. Just ask Letitia, Rowcastle, Les Ferdinand, Devil Suka, Philip Albert, some bloke from my 92-93 goals VHS, I can't remember, Robert Pires and more. Yeah. You cannot be the greatest of all time with such a glaring hole in your games. Well, Kind regards, S. Mustard. That's where both I and Johan Cruyff will disagree with you, Mr. Mustard, because the argument is those keepers will make those mistakes, but the points that they gain you by the rest of their game, it's like a sweeper keeper. You will always concede goals with a sweeper keeper, but what he gives you as an attacking force and as a formation massively outweighs those occasional things. Well, so it's, it's I never had you down as a sweeper keeper. It's up to you. No, I don't think he is. No, no, no. I just meant meant in terms of a keeper that sort of brings something to a game that perhaps no one else does. But as a result of that, there's a there's an unnecessary or an unappealing byproduct. And if getting chipped, if getting chipped, what was that? Half a dozen times. You're the one who's got to allow it or disallow it. So use this as your final um, piece into giving your verdict. Well, when I think about those goals, he can, now he's just said that Peter Smichael get, getting lobbed way too much. All I can think about is Peter Smichael just looking on like with like a dead face as he's being lobbed, hardly moving. That Suko one, I think the Latisse one, he's hardly moving, isn't he? Yeah, he's getting lobbed out all the time. I, I, yeah. Yeah, I, agree, I agree with it, S Mustard. I'm declaring that a valid opinion. Yeah. Well, there we go. If you've got any more controversial takes on 90s football so far, the 66 and that one have been considered both agreeable, then you can get in touch. This is one of my favourite emails of a long time from Ryan Clark. Team bars or not team bars? Apologies in advance for this not being 90s as a football story, but it does contain a 90s footballer. I was listening to your pod. The- I'm already laughing because I know what's coming. I was listening to your pod the other day. You know when you think... I'm heading towards something that we're going to be discussing for at least two series here. <laughs> um, I was listening to your pod the other day and you were discussing the team bar on whether or not it still exists. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. I can tell this is going to be good. <laughs> whether, sorry. <laughs> I still exist and it reminds me of something several years ago I had the pleasure of playing a five side tournament <laughs> <laughs> it's the mental image sorry 
Five-a-side five tournament at the home ground of Cheltenham Town. This was post-season. There were more sand on the pitch than grass. Anyway, the change rooms were open and free for us to use throughout the day. In the middle of the team shower was a bath. Smack back in the middle. Not a big team bath. A normal-sized bath. I was told... <laughs> It was a contractual request of Alan Wright when he joined the club in 2007. (laughs) I can just imagine the other players stood around in the showers watching Alan Wright in the bath. (laughs) But what, just his own bath? The normal bath in the middle of the showers. Alan Wright's requested if he's going to sign for the team. Oh, I've got so many questions. He just um, runs a bath on his own. Do you think it was exclusively his? Like no other like, player was allowed to like use? Like the Manic Street Preacher's toilet backstage at Glastonbury. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. It's just such an image of all the players in the showers and Alan Wright lying in his own bath. <laughs> why would you why would you request something like that? I suppose if you're if you're Cheltenham Town and you're signing Alan Wright, he's got all the chips. Do you know what I mean? So he can make these kind of requests. I want another five hundred quid a week. Can't give you that. Can I have a bath? <laughs> <laughs> but also how like your, your teammates, the dynamic is gonna be it's going to be weird when they're all in the shower. Are you filling your bath then? It's all filling your bath for you. Are you having a soak? Because like, you're going to be in that bath for longer than everyone's in the shower. Also, <laughs> after a victory, fair enough. <laughs> after like a defeat. And they're all showering, waiting for the telling off. And Alan Barth. Alan Barth. <laughs> That's great coming off the back of Bobby Comover. Yeah. Oh, and another. Oh, if it isn't Alan Barr. Um, uh, with all your 90s football contacts, could you try and verify this? He says. Also, whether he had just had the same bath installed and removed from all the clubs he played for, or whether because he was so small he could do a couple of lengths in it after the game. <laughs> It's not the greatest tale, I'll admit, but the wonders of Alan Wright and his bath have often kept me awake at night. Yours, Ryan Clark. Oh, wow. So what's the club? Cheltenham Town. It's a, so bit... a big deal. Okay. They're in the... So they're doing well for themselves. But if anyone has any kind of contacts or would have had pictures of the Cheltenham Town dressing room at home, please let us know. This is exactly what this podcast is here for. Uh, thank you so much for the brilliant correspondence. As always, if you want to get in touch, this is how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Um, genuinely, there are footballers who you're excited to meet. There are people who we've had on, comedians that are like heroes. And then there are probably guests that have affected your life more than any other and john hare who created sensible soccer is one of those guests (laughs) 
Today's guest was central to the creation of the greatest football artefact of the 90s, a game that topped Amiga Power's greatest Amiga games of all time, sold over 2 million copies and in 2007 was named by a panel of academics and experts as one of the 10 most important video games of all time. A man who has possibly brought us more joy than any of our previous guests, one of the two men behind Sensible Software and the glorious Sensible Soccer. Welcome to Quickly Kevin, John Hare. Hello, thank you for having me. That's a hell of an intro, wasn't it? Sorry, yeah, I wrote that, and I, what I realised is uh, I then made Chris read it, so he looks <laughs> like he's the toady. <laughs> um, you must be proud of that, achieve, the achievements of this game. I think that any creative person in whatever field they work in, yeah. games, film, music, whatever, um, to have that standout title everyone remembers is amazing, because yeah. we were all working towards that, you know? yeah. So to have got there relatively, it's kind of not the start of my career, seven years in, was, yeah. a, was a great thing. That at least you can, you know, if, if you finish today, you can go, at least I did that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's a good thing. Um, did, you, did it feel like that at the time? Did you think, I've, this could be the greatest thing I've ever done? Or did you kind of expect you'd be creating hit after hit? Sure uh, essentially, the... like... <laughs> I was just like... trying to say, I'm not sure it is the greatest thing you've ever done. That's the beauty. <laughs> I, I'm... I'm... We'll come to cannon fodder, but sorry. <laughs> um, I think that I think that we had it, it was kind of at the start of our golden period at Sensible Software. So we had in the Commodore sixty four the eight bit times, if you like. We had we got good uh, reviews and people liked our stuff. We had a couple of number one games, but yeah. nothing that really went, yeah, wow, this is this is yeah. it, you know. And Sensible Soccer was the one that did that. But what's interesting when we started making it. Within two months, we knew it. Right. It just had really? it. Really? Yeah, it just had it for us oh, as wow. game players. We're playing our own game. And know? how early in the sort of gestation process is two months when you when you're, well, you don't design computer games? Like, how kind of basic uh, oh, well, is that version of the game? I mean, uh, in those days, I mean, this current game's taken four years to make. Right. Uh, but in those days, it would be nine months a year. Not between nine months and 18 months. The original Sensible Soccer, I think, was round about 10, 11 months. So it's very near. It's like that first quarter of development, but it's that instant playability. Right. And so is, is that luck or judgment at that stage? It's a combination. It, you know, it's like in any job, the more you do something, the better you get at it. Yeah. Because you've got the experience of kind of knowing and using your instinct. So yeah. you try stuff out, but you know some of it's going to fail before you try it. So yeah. you don't get too precious about holding on to stuff. It's yeah. like, try it, chuck it on the table. It's broken, bin it. Yeah. Carry on again. Yeah. So we'd had, I mean, Sensible Soccer was our, I'm trying to think, eighth game, ninth game. Yeah. You know, we'd done a lot of games before as a tight team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we really knew how to work with each other and we really could fastly judge. And because you know someone, you can criticise them very easily to their face and it's wrong, <laughs> which helps, but it all helps. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. know you've all got your talents, but you know that you can be straight with somebody. Yeah. And, and it was also an experiment where we got a different guy to come in as a lead programmer. We tried to shuffle things around a bit and it just kind of fell into place, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's go back to the start. So you, you're a child mm-hmm. before really computer games are kind of a thing. Okay. Well, my dad, so so give it history, my dad and my grandfather played Sabutio. Yeah. Ooh. And actually they played in some competitive pub league like before oh, really? I was born, yeah. So Sabutio was always kicking around in the house. Yeah. And I would always nag my father to play Sabutio every day he came home from work. I set it up. Let's go. You know? <laughs> and of course you can't play Sabutio on your own really, you know, when yeah. you're, especially when you're a young kid and you can't bring your mates around or whatever yet. When we had the Sabutio 
set at home, the old one. I like they had this little leaflet in it. And you've got like your teams, like you've got your red and white and your blue and white. And you've got red and white and that's Manchester United, you know. But but it's also Crew Alexandra. And it's also like a lot of other like, exotic teams like Benfica. And it's like, yeah. wow. <laughs> you know. And, and, and these kind of things I found really inspiring because I like yeah, geography yeah. as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like you've got a team which is Malmo in Sweden, but it's also Uruguay, but it's also Man City. It's like, wow. This is amazing. So I think that... <clears throat> and that came in when Sensible World of Soccer, which we've obviously come to, was so vast. Absolutely. Even with Sensible Soccer, we started to move there. You know. Yeah. So to me, it was just when I was a child, I wanted to play Sabutio against my father or someone, yeah. but no one was there. Right. So like Sensible, <laughs> Sensible World of Soccer and Sensible Soccer gave you the opportunity to do that, basically. Yeah. You then met, so Chris Yates, who you found, ended uh-huh. up founding Sensible Software with. Yeah. How did you start programming and come <clears throat> together? Okay, so myself and Chris were at the same school in Chelmsford. We met, actually, on a train. We like Mick both... Jagger and Keith Richards. <laughs> did they <laughs> meet on a train? They met on a train platform. <laughs> so we actually, we, were, we went to a uh, Rush gig in London, a Canadian yeah. band Rush. We were both fans of it. And we, within months, we'd formed a band together. Yeah. And uh, got another guy. What was your band like? dreadful at the start <laughs> um, we had a drummer who said he was a drummer the most we heard him on was saucepans and then we got a drum kit for this first gig we ever did in the scout hut and uh, we opened up with We Will Rock You which has got the simplest yeah. drum in the world and he couldn't do it and we're like, great. <laughs> you know you're in trouble then <laughs> <laughs> so but me and Chris went on to make lots of music together so we'd, we'd made three albums in yeah. our way, way of music before we even made a game together Oh, really? And that was important because you get a creative partnership. Like, we're writing music together. He's the more technical guy, but not somebody who wants to do words and that kind of stuff. Whereas on the other side, I'm more like the arty one, and he's more the technical one, which is a great fusion for making music. But that just carried on to games. But the games, we started to make them, and they were fun. It was very, very new technology. And we found we were quite good at it. So... Chris got a job. We had no money, basically, you know. And Chris wanted a computer to learn a computer program, but he, he couldn't afford one. But you could get from the K's catalogue, if you turned your eyes away from the underwear section, <laughs> there was a computer section, and Chris worked out that he could get it for a month and then send it back. Right. So he didn't want it. And so he did this three times in a row with K's and two other catalogues. With a spectrum. <laughs> Saw himself to program, got a demo of Snoopy flying around in the kennel around a screen and got a job. Wow. wow. Brilliantly innovative. Yeah. So he went to work for a company in Basildon called LT Software. But then I was in, around his house one day and he was um, trying to do some graphics because that was part of his job and he couldn't do it. He said, could, I, could you help me? So I thought, okay, why not? I do arty kind of stuff. So I tried to do the pixel graphics for some dragons and some wizards on this game. And Chris put them in the game and the company liked the work I'd done. So then they offered me some work. So it was a kind of accident. Well, really, it's like everything in life happens like yeah, that. Yeah. So, so then we started to do uh, some odd jobs. I did odd jobs in a number of different games for this company for about a year. Then we made a game together called Twister. And it was okay. It did okay. It was, it was like cutting our teeth. But we did learn, I don't know how we learned this, that the LT software who we were working for got 85% of the money and we did all of the work, 100%. <laughs> so we were like, this isn't going to happen again, you know. <laughs> so we decided to set up our own company. 1986, March 1986, we set up Sensible Software on a government enterprise scheme. And we're both still living with our parents at this time. We're like 19, 20. We're working in the spare bedroom in his dad's house with Flintstones wallpaper on the bedroom <laughs> walls. And that was our office. Wow. And we oh. made Parallax in that office. And Parallax 
That was, was your first kind of big hit game. Right? It was our first game, Essential Software. So yeah. we made we made the demo. Uh, we contacted Ocean Software, who were based in Manchester, who were the biggest publisher at the time. And how they, did you contact them? I can't remember how we got Yellow Pages? Them. Probably, <laughs> one of those? probably some magazine. And we, we took a demo up on the train. And they said, we, they took our game and they said, you know what, your game is really good. Well done, boys. Uh, our manager would like to see you. Oh, wow. So we, we were taken to this managing director's office. Now, this guy is called John Woods. And we were really scared of him because we're like two young kids. And he's like this big Mancunian, or sorry, Liverpudlian businessman. Who could have been selling anything, you know, and he could have us over a barrel. Yeah. But he said, my guy said, they like your game. Here's a contract. And here's a check just for there a friend. And then. First day of business. <laughs> had you just made that game completely on spec? Like you decided what no, you No, it wanted. was just our, it was just us. Yeah, but you had just sort of sat in your room together and gone, what type of game do we want but to play? In those no days, so, so there's different phases in, in, in sensible software history. So in those days, Chris was the guy who was really driving things more. And... You know, we didn't have games around us so much. There's yeah. the odd, v, you know, Atari, VCS, but yeah. not a lot. But we used to look at the arcade machines. And he was a big fan of, like, Salamander and Nemesis and all these yeah. kind of games. And those kind of games were the influence. So Chris would just be messing around with stuff at his house. Yeah. And I'd come around and he'd go, guess what I've done? Look, it's a ship flying around. But we were a creative partnership member. We used to write songs together. So we just just banging yeah. ideas off of each other. Right, you do that, I'll do this. Okay, see you in a few hours. Like this and back. We've done it. Yeah, put it in. Does it work? It's how it was going. And there's only two people, so the communication loop is, like, fantastic. Yeah. No, there's no gaps. If you've seen those videos of Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Eric Bird and those black and white ones from the 60s and Hendrix, and they're all kind of, like, smoking cigarettes and hanging around, it was like that. But with Fred Flintstone on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, we didn't... Actually, it was like that when we went to meet other people who did this, which was the next stage. But it was that formative. It was like a scene that hadn't really formed yet. Yeah. And we were lucky to be there at the right time when this was building up. Do you feel like your timing was kind of perfect? Because by the mid-90s, when you... By the mid-90s, it was horrendous, yeah. (laughs) You couldn't couldn't come in, could you, really? (laughs) You couldn't get in. So, in a very brief thing, the appetite for original games was huge, especially in the UK, and to a lesser extent, around Europe. Our games never sold as sensible software outside of Europe, really. Nothing to talk about. Really? What, Megalomania was one format in Japan, a really obscure one. None of our games sold in the States. Well, soccer's not going to sell in the States anyway. No. We were lucky in that our publishers, you know, the main selling points in the UK in those days were like Smiths, Boots, and independent retailers. Boots? Yeah, Boots were selling. Boots. The chemists. Yeah, Boots. I remember <laughs> buying tapes from Boots, one ninety nine, two ninety nine. the old budget. Wow. The independent retailers were really open-minded, like the independent game shops. They're like, whatever, bring it on, you know. But what had happened by the mid-90s, the big guys had come into our industry, so they'd started to smell money. Yeah. So you got, like, Warner, Bertelsmann, Sony, all these companies, like film music companies, moving into games. Most of our companies, including us, kind of sold out in this six-year <laughs> window, the first, first offer of decent money. But then we ended up in a world where suddenly we're going through bigger retailers, like the yeah, likes of Game, right. HMV or whatever. And then their guys who are stocking stuff are like, instead of like independent fans going, yeah, what's the new thing? They're like, well, we need this shelf space here. Well, that's already reserved for eight. Yeah. And then we can only put five new titles here this month. And uh, and what's this thing? I've never heard of it. We've got this film tie in here. Right. Mm, yeah. yeah. And that's how it started to go. Yeah. So within this space of time, the especially when we got to consoles, the consoles kind of changed everything because 
at once there was more money it was more americanized and the retail pattern changed but when you started it felt like it was just it was, it was like, amazing it felt it was, like punk or something it was like very much like that it was open you know it's it is right place right time and we were good so then your first football game was Microprose Soccer. Yeah. Did you always want to do a football game? Of course. And that was from based on Take On World Cup, which is the one with the trackball yeah. Yeah. from years yeah. ago. So that was, again, based on a, an arcade machine. But me and Chris, both football fans, so we did, did that. Did you play the football games before? Like, were the football games good? Well, Take On World Cup was the best. That was yeah. the one with the trackball. It was yeah. an arcade machine. I mean, some of the ones on the Commodore 64 are horrendous. They really were bad. <laughs> what were the ones on the Commodore 64, then? Like Emlyn Hughes Soccer and... And were you playing them thinking, I can do better than this Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. That's how it goes, you know. So how, did, how do you begin making a football game? Do you, do you, did you have a meeting where you're like, right, what, how does it work? Meeting? <laughs> no. God's sake. What's the first thing you do? We were either having a cup of tea or in the pub or something. Going, do you, what are we going to do next? Oh, it's like that. What do you want to do next? Oh, I, I fancy doing this. So... It starts with coders, you know. It's like yeah. just a programmer trying something out. What do you think? It's, I've done this. What do you think? And he's giving it to you and going, "What do you make of this?" Yeah, I just he said, "Look what I did just last night." <laughs> that's it. Literally, how it starts. And I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting." And interestingly, we we were the first game to add bending the ball. Yeah. In you invented bending the ball. Well, we didn't quite. <laughs> we didn't. Well, we did. But it's an interesting story. Take on World Cup. You also bend the ball, but it was a bug. <laughs> I was reading about it years later. They'd done something wrong with the ball tracking. <laughs> so we're the first game to intentionally bend the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the equivalent of slicing a golf shot by mistake. <laughs> Correct, yeah. So, I mean, it had a lot of innovation. So it had the first one to have action replays. You did rewind. Yeah. Then you got an action replay. We were, I think we did rain. The first one to do rain and you could slide a bit longer. We did indoor and outdoor soccer. We did these overlaid sprites graphically. So we put a high-res sprite on top of a low-res, colourful one. So when you're making games, really, underlyingly, the innovations is what gets the public excited, but they're not quite aware that's what's making them excited. Are people going, rain, wow, at that stage? Oh, yeah, they're going, wow, so. it's got rain in it, it's outdoors, it bends the ball, you know. It's like... <laughs> and are you feeling like you? we need these things that make uh, talking points, in a way? No, we're just doing shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know... Uh, no, we're not. We're not deliberately seeking it out. It's not premeditated at all. You just you just try it and it works. And what people should always remember when they're making anything, be it a game or a film or a piece of music or writing a book or whatever, it's framed. Every put thing you put out there to the public is framed by the time it comes out. So, if you look at when punk launched, it was like it, music had got a little bit sedate. You had. Yeah. Much as I love all the prog rock stuff, which I really do. You had that. Mm. And then you had kind of like very middle of the road, 70s stuff, Brotherhood of Man. <laughs> and suddenly it's like, what is that in the centre of this frame? And people often forget that, you know. Yeah. So what was framing Sensible Soccer, if you know what I mean? If what was it. framing it? Sensible Soccer. Well, oh. before Sensible Soccer was kickoff. So yeah. if you got Micro Soccer was lauded by CMBG as the best sports game of all time when it came out on the 64 in 88. But then, I think the year later, you know, uh, Dino Dini and, and Anko released so Kickoff. So Dino Dini? Because it was one of those ones Dino's where... Dino's a, a programmer. It, like, occasionally with those games, mm -hmm. there'd be... Sid Meier with Civilization. Yeah. yeah. You get these people that would, like, 
give the put their name on much more prominently on the game. I've tried that once. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought growing up that Diodini was an Italian football player. And, uh, and it, <laughs> what? I still did until this chat right now. <laughs> I didn't realise. I won't ruin the myth then. No, D- Dino's uh, uh, English of Italian heritage. Did he put his name on because he sounded exotic? No, no, it's not like that. Because I've done it before. You do it because you don't have the license for one thing, but you do have the license for your name always, and that resonates more. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. that's what you do. I think Dino, he sounded a bit like a Baggio. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> <laughs> so, Kickoff Two uh-huh. was. So, I would have been when Kickoff Two came out. Was the moment was that about ninety one, something like that? Not something like that. Yeah, ninety one. Yeah. So, I'd have been eight or nine, and I remember that being the one that everyone was talking about playing. Right. So, do you remember our game Megalomania? Yes. Right. So, Megalomania. Myself and Chris Chapman were were the, the main people on it. He was doing. The programming, yep. I was doing the art. Other people doing other stuff, but we were the main guys. And it was a kind of god sim. God sim kind of thing. It was the first game to ever have a tech tree in it. There you go. There's another piece What's of innovation. A tech, tree? a tech tree is where you design one thing and then you get some extra stuff and then from that you can design a better thing. Right. Which is I now see, like yeah. the staple of a whole bunch of games. Yes. But we were the first yeah. game to do it. Again, totally by accident. You know. It's not like, <laughs> let's be the first company to design the tech tree. It was like, let's, We're done rain. Guys... <laughs> let's do a tech tree. <laughs> Let, let's get guys mining and making stuff from what they're mining, was the thought. Yeah. And then, you know, then it went up and up because it's about civilization growing. Anyway, so during the end of this game, this game was a nightmare to make. It was a very complicated development process. It was a year and a half. And the last three or four or five months, me and Chris Chapman were working every night in the office till about two or three in the morning. And in those days, it took ages to make a build of a game. So whilst we were waiting for the build, we would be playing Kickoff 2. Yeah. And we played it again and again and again and again and again and again. And we're like, this is really good, but, you know, <laughs> I don't like, I can't see who I'm passing to, and a couple of other things we thought we could improve the controls. Uh, kickoff the control, 2 was... That was like, the ball control on it wasn't sticky enough. That is my main it memory It was a of different it. way, and some people still prefer that to this day, but it was a certain type of... A control and so i remember us going right we're going to do it we're going to beat it you know and, and towards <laughs> that end i got really enthusiastic so our little megalomania men i dressed up in football kits which actually just for your own pleasure yeah that, just to force the the issue that we are <laughs> going to do a football game <laughs> and so the very first uh footballers sensible soccer men were actually running around megalomania's world <laughs> yeah they're running around these mines and towers and stuff like that trying not to get blown up and um, yeah, that's that's how that that's started. How it and, started. It, and actually, I remember us at some point throwing kickoff two onto the train track outside the window. I can't remember why. I think it's <laughs> I, I can't remember because we didn't like it or we were playing it too much and trying to make ourselves work. <laughs> but, but it went. Uh, and yeah, and then two months later we had the first game, and we were just lucky again that the megalomania perspective worked perfectly as a pitch. Because that's one football. of the things. Well, yeah, the top down. Yeah, the top down is kind of. It feels kind of. You don't get that now. It's just megalomania. That's the reason. You just inherited that and it was like, this is easier. We just did it first and it just worked. And we're like, okay, if I ain't broke, don't fix it. Did you ever try side to side? Did you, was there an initial attempt? Or? Um, no, not at that time. It's yeah. not like, I mean, you know, in our current game, we've got all sorts of camera angles, yeah. you know, side side up, down, whatever. But in those days, no, it was a, it was a lot more work. You had to choose, basically. Because yeah. it wasn't 3D at all. Yeah. So you had to, like, do it all one way. Do you think those little sprites, because in my head, those little sprites, like the men from Sensible Soccer, yeah. which were from Megalomania, yeah. and kind of similar in Cannon Fodder, 
Yeah. It's like an it's almost like the iconic sensible software thing. And there's so much character. How is there so much character in there? Well, it's interesting. This is this is learning how when you make a game, you've really got to understand the psychology of someone playing a game. Mm. Now, interestingly, because I did all the art up to up to up to sensible soccer, I did all the art. Right. Even WizKid I did. And then then Stu Cambridge and other guys came in and probably improved it. Anyway, <laughs> but but those little sensible soccer men are sixteen pixels high. And what your brain does when it can't quite decipher stuff is it fills in information. It fills in the holes for you. Right. So yeah. literally all the sensible soccer men do is left leg forward, legs together, right leg forward. That's all they do. <laughs> right? They just do that. And they do throw-ins and slide tackles and headers. That's all they can do, okay? But they do that. But you get people going, oh, he chested it down. (laughs) Right, okay. (laughs) It's just how your brain works. It's desperate for some reality. Do you think that that's... I think that's a big thing with um, the success of those Championship Manager games in the 90s where you've got just the words description. Yeah. And in your head... You fill in the details. It's like the the difference between a book and a film. You know, how many people watch a film and go, I didn't imagine it like that. Yeah. You know, because those gaps allow you to put you into it. Yeah. It's quite interesting how it works. And so we went through a period of 3D graphics where it looked worse because suddenly you're not allowed to fill in the holes. It's like trying to be something, but it looks a bit crap. Because you know? <laughs> it hadn't quite got to the level where it could look yeah. amazing. Like now we've gone beyond there that. There was point. quite a few games of that era. I think Settlers is one where yeah. it suffered with the upgrade of graphics. I loved Settlers, I loved Megalomania, I loved Sensible Soccer. The next versions of those games where the sort of 3D had come into it really sort of took something away from the enjoyment of the games. It's it's interesting. It's like where we are with uh, Wi-Fi or internet connection at the moment. It's like it kind of works, but it's always broken. You've always got to log back on again or go somewhere else. You know, we're going to look back at this era and go, God, wasn't it? How did they put up with that? They didn't have it on trains. They would be saying they didn't have it on trains. It's like we're so desperate to push new technology when it emerges. This is coming back to these 3D graphics. We don't really wait till it's consumer ready. Yeah. Yeah. You know. The 90s felt like a point generally where we had so much technology that wasn't quite good enough. So you had the mobile phones, you had the the internet where you were. Pages. You had the pages. (laughs) Everything felt like it was the first start of these things. So you've got this game. I'm obsessed with the kind of, and you after two months you're thinking this is good. Uh huh. What's the step? What happens then? Had you been paid to do this, or you just no, doing it on no, spec? no. You don't get paid yet. So <laughs> the very first game was Norwich v Sunderland because Jules, our lead programmer, can afford was a Sunderland fan. I'm a Norwich fan, and the kits like were quite nice contrast, and one was striping, one wasn't. Yeah. So that was if anyone wants to know, that's the very first, the very first ever game. Norwich Sunderland. Norwich yeah. v Sunderland. I can't remember who won, but we won the Milk Cup final. With an own goal. So, a replay of the Milk Cup final. <laughs> a replay of the Milk Cup final from 1985, I believe. <laughs> yeah. So what happens then is, as in any game, we took it to a publisher. Now, this Sensible Circle's got an interesting publishing story as well. So we took it to our publisher from Megalomania, Mirasoft. So the Daily Mirror group had their software arm at the time called Mirasoft. And they were very successful. And they didn't, didn't just have us signed. They had the Bitmap Brothers signed and... A whole host have, of so is this Robert Maxwell at this point? Of course it is. Yes. <gasps> the wonderful Robert Maxwell. Yes, the wonderful Robert Maxwell. And his, which... and his wonderful daughter as well. <laughs> <laughs> well. So we have a very interesting history with Mr Maxwell. Do so you? Megalomania came out and went straight to number one in about October, I think it was, or November of 91. 
And before we got our first royalty check, Mr. Maxwell jumped off his boat and took all our royalties with it. Oh, wow. We actually lost 75 grand, which was 75% of our turnover that year. Oh, my God. Oh, my (laughs) word. But of course, compared to pensioners losing their pensions, it's not even a story. (laughs) So basically, loads of us. So at that time, because it was going really well with Mirasoft until that point, you know, we had Megalomania sign, we had Megalomania 2, we had Cannon Fodder, and we had Sensible Soccer, all signed to Mirasoft. Oh, so has Mirasoft gone under then? No, this is just at the point beforehand. So we had four games signed. Most of the good British developers all signed to Mirasoft. They are going to clean up yeah. before this happens. Mr. Maxwell probably doesn't even know what... A... Doesn't need to jump <laughs> off that boat. He doesn't even know what Amiga <laughs> is, I'm sure. <laughs> then we had a big meeting when they dissolved the company. All, the diff- all us different software guys sitting together. Yeah. It's a very interesting point in the industry, actually, because... And do you all get on? Well, we hadn't really met each other beforehand, apart from the odd guys we worked with directly, apart from the ones we've been interviewed with at Zap64, which yeah. we chatting and that and having a beer. I see you all meet but this is now time. business. We're all suddenly all sitting the same side of the fence together. It's like know. that bit in The Usual Suspects, where the five guys <laughs> come together at the start. So, some of the guys, Fergus McGovern, for example, unfortunately Fergus is no, no longer here, but he was running Probe at the time. Mm. And he had a little bit more business now than some of us. And um, he... He helped us, him and several of the others, helped us collectively to, to work with this to make sure that we got all our rights back for our games. Right. For example. Oh, that's good. So this was a great time because suddenly we were all comparing notes. Like, how much are you getting in advances? How much are you getting in royalties? <laughs> and we're, like, teaching each other. We, we were collectively nudging the bar up of deals right. we were getting. And were you thrust into having to be a businessman, which you never thought Absolutely, you'd Absolutely, yeah. So the lesson for here to me was to use lawyers. We'd started off being teenagers, wanted to be in a band. For the <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a kind of band. We had, six, kind of band. we had six of us at that time. So it was like a band. Yeah. You know, that time when we did Sensible Soccer Cannon for the WizKid, Megalomania was six guys. It seems like it's a very small team to make a one of those games, let alone a volume of games. Well, it's the technology, the lack of demand. You know, 2D games on a 16-bit machine took mostly two guys about a year, year and a half. Right. And even as an artist, I could do two games at once. So I was doing WizKid and Sensible Soccer simultaneously and controlling most of the design. And is it like an office soccer. job? Or is it like... In my head, you see those documentaries about computing at that time or whatever, yeah. and it's just people sat with takeaways till 3am. That's what it was. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had an office and we had a we had a space. Yeah. Relatively big for the six of us. Big enough to play cricket inside, <laughs> <laughs> with a with an old QL as a bat, and if the key came off, you got a four. It was a brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but that was kind of where we were. But you know, people were sleeping under the desk sometimes. I didn't. You know, we we just worked bloody hard. But we we made sure that everyone on the team was cut in with royalties. So everyone had an individual contract. No one was employees. Everyone were, were contractors. Everyone's got a royalty. Everyone's incentivized to work to three in the morning every day. <laughs> you know that must have been really exciting. It was brilliant. Time. It was brilliant, and it's a good way to run a small company. Well, we will come mm-hmm. to like the success of Sensible Soccer, but uh-huh. you you sold two million copies. But there's lots of piracy at the time. It's there was, working. if I How think about the money it? I've lost through piracy, although people wouldn't have played the game. So there's, yeah. there's, there's pluses and minuses. Piracy was twenty or thirty to one across Europe. <laughs> I mean, wow. well, everyone... imagine 30 people playing the game for everyone who bought it. Yep. Wow. Wow. Just because you could just copy an Amiga disc. Yeah. And, but, and uh, also, it's, it's also to do with the. 20 or. And did you know this at the time? Well, no, we didn't. You know, I mean, there's some really good stories about this. Um, in Poland, like, I worked in Poland for five years, got lots of friends in Poland, but at that time, 
it was like almost coming from a behind the iron curtain mentality because we happened in 89. So there's no easy access. Even in the Commodore 64 era, for example, they couldn't access these machines legally yeah. or the, the games. One guy told me, he said, okay, I, I pirated your game. Hands up, I pirated your game. You're not alone. But they had on the equivalent of BBC Two Radio, the signal of the tape game broadcast at midnight. <laughs> so how? What? Because they had no concept of IP ownership at all. So what? They were like trying to broadcast now. the game yeah, to it's the like nation. China is now. It's the same. They've got no concept of how wow. these processes work. <laughs> so this is why the you know I've just remembered that I used to have a thing because I had all I because I was a dweeb. I had all mm-hmm. I bought all the games or my dad did and like you have this kind of double wheel thing that you couldn't photocopy that you'd have to t- it was a bit like you know that mm. NatWest card yeah, thing you put yeah, in yeah. And, and you have to put a code in yeah to you start had to put a code in to show yeah. you had the real version and stuff like that did that not was that not working to stop I mean just stop to think about the money for a bit right yeah. so, can I just say on the money point like when we were researching this interview, I've got no idea if you were making millions of pounds a day or like twenty quid. It, it's really unclear. I think, as to me and many outsiders, just how much well, it's interesting. Flying around. So it's, this is a really interesting point. Just on that yeah. before I talk mm, about the yeah. actual money, um, it doesn't matter. You know, you don't care. How much did Mozart make? Does anyone know? <laughs> <laughs> how much did Van Gogh make? A real weird one. Yeah. We, yeah. we don't know. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And. I'm not saying I'm not comparing myself to these guys, but it's the same. You don't really know. You don't, as a as someone watching someone else's work, you don't care. Yeah. The reality was, we made enough to survive through the Commodore 64 years, but not really, you know, enough enough to get a small mortgage and a small house by moving to an unfashionable part of the country. And then, when the advances were creeping up in terms of money, so the way the business worked is, you made your demo for two or three months, then you went to a publisher, and when they signed the game, you secured an advance. Right. So those advances, they started off at 5,000. By the time we got to 95, we were getting a million quid a game advances. So between 85 and 95, that is very different, right? (laughs) Uh, And we went from 15% royalty to 50% royalty. Wow. So it's always working that business side. And if anything, the problem in the mid-90s was the developers, not just us, the other companies, we had too much power. And that was part of what this was brought down with this, we're not going to sign the original games anymore. Suddenly it all... Or the carpet was pulled from under our feet. If you look at, well, Sensible Soccer, let's take this this one game in point. Yeah. Two million copies roughly sold, which is a fact. calculation. Sensible World or something. Yeah, the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Is that worldwide? Worldwide. Wow. Yeah, but mostly in Europe. Yeah. Uh, mostly, yeah, mostly sold in Western Europe. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so if you look at that, we were making as a company about three quid a copy from a 20, 20 pound sale price by the time you. Take so off. that's not loads, is it? No, because you you got your 20 quid that the punter plays. Then you take off VAT. Then 55% is spent on, like, whoever's distributing it. That would have been Smith's at the time or whoever. Making the unit, sticking it in cellophane, <laughs> putting it on a pallet, putting it in a warehouse, getting it in a lorry, driving it to another warehouse, blah, blah, blah. That's 55% of the money gone yeah. in that process, you know, plus the retailer. Fair enough. Then we come down to the money that's left. So now you're down to take a V10, I don't know, eight quid or whatever. And then you take off the marketing costs and all the other stuff which comes off from the publisher side. And then we split with the publisher what's left. So, so in that Intensible Soccer's case, it was around about six quid left. We got 50%, the best good. deal we'd ever signed, which was 
the best, luckiest thing ever. So we got three quid. Then of that three quid, the way we worked internally was for the original versions of the game, which our, our programmers made, which was like the Amiga, the ST, and the Sega Mega Drive, which were the 68,000 language machines. We would give 30% to the programmer, 15% uh, to the artist. But in this case, the artist was me, so that wasn't negated. And then about 4% to our sound guy. Yeah. And then on the conversions, which they didn't even do, which we outsourced, uh, we would give them 15% between them and to get their support on doing it, but then we'd have to pay the outsourced company. So that meant, with that three quid coming in, basically, about a third of that went to the guys who were due royalties. Uh, and then the rest was just me and Chris splitting the money half each. So, so you get like a quid a each. Quid each. So if you think it sold two million copies <laughs> and I got a quid and 60 million were pirated... Oh. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it doesn't. I'm not complaining. I've always no. been very. I've had money, but in terms of business, you could have done more. You know, you could yeah. have taken more risks or done stuff. But the piracy is what made the game massive. Is that is, of course it, it is? Yeah, 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 yeah around the world, yeah. like around the world, everyone's played the game. They simply would not have played it if they hadn't been able to pirate it. Yeah, because we we interviewed Miles Jacobson. He said something sort of along those lines yeah. where when they were going to roll out the next version of Championship Manager, they removed any of the anti-piracy software from the last version of the old uh -huh. one in the hope that people would share it so that the audience for the next version, which would have piracy software on uh -huh. it, would increase exponentially. But, I mean, obviously, Well, I think it did pretty well, you presume. <laughs> yeah. It seems like they're, they're doing fairly well, but yeah. it's quite a high-risk strategy, I'd imagine. It was kind of unavoidable. I mean, you know... In a lot of countries, it was unavoidable. Even in some countries like the Netherlands, there was a lot of piracy, for example. Here, there was quite a lot of piracy. There's boot sales of people, you know, pirating games and sitting yeah. at the back of their car. And I mean, it, like I said, it's a double-edged sword for us. It gives us the, Mate, the public publicity. I'm as frustrated as you. I feel like I'm an idiot that I paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should give you a pound. <laughs> yeah, I actually... I actually I, so got I've, this... I've given you three quid, four, four quid probably <laughs> Thanks, over time. That's you. mad, isn't it? I, I've got this half-joke Kickstarter idea that I will give people a forgiveness certificate if they give me a pound. <laughs> I think that would do well. Yeah, I might try it. Get it behind the Iron Curtain, see what happens. <laughs> Clean up. Um, let, right, so let's get back to the game. So, with Sensible Soccer, it's a great game. When you launch yeah. it, do you think this is a hit? We hoped it would be a hit. So what happened when, when Mirosoft went down? We had to go to our bank manager and say, look, we've got a bit of a problem. We just lost 75% of our turnover. But we've got these two games and we showed him these two plastic floppy disks <laughs> and we think we're going to do alright you know and he saw two plastic disks that's 25p that's worth 25p uh, I'm not going to lend you any money boys he didn't realise this was sensible soccer and candle fodder we might oh wow to a bank manager <laughs> he didn't understand it you know but so luckily we didn't borrow the money and then we quite quickly found a publishing deal with Sensible Soccer. We saw a few people and we chose to go with uh, Renegade, which was formed by the Bitmap Brothers and Rhythm King Records and kind mm. of joined forces, which proved to be a, a good, great choice. They were great to work with and really did a great job on the game. And then when it comes out and it's uh, it's so well-reviewed and it like Amiga uh -huh. Power's number one game and all that. I was just going to ask before that, what did you do for Launch Party? God, yeah. I can't even remember. Do you, remember. Did you get someone to get a footballer down? No, nothing like that. Oh, no, we did uh, We did some promotional shoot at Wembley with Captain Sensible. <laughs> did he, he wrote, do the wrote, music? Yeah, he did. And Bart, there's another story with that. So he did. 
And I asked him how much he wanted for it, and he said a pint. So we bought him a pint. <laughs> I gave him a one-page contract, which he didn't sign. I thought, oh, he's a punk. It doesn't matter. And then three months later, we got um, sued by his publisher because he didn't own the music. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so God. we had to pay someone 10 grand to... Oh, make it go away. There you go. Oh, another one. That, that was up. a joy of success, you know. Like he wouldn't have bothered if he wasn't <laughs> successful. But that's what happens. And the more successful you are, the more people yeah. come at you. One of the first things Sensible mm-hmm. Soccer did was it was the first uh, to have accurate player skin color. We were the first. The first. Actually, we were the very first. And I think that it's mad to think that, isn't it? Now it's just lazy programmers and artists. That's all it is. It's like <laughs> I've done the sprite model; it's good enough. You know, I refuse to do two or three or four <laughs> or five. But for me, as a football fan, you know, I'm looking at Liverpool, and there's this guy called John Barnes, and he's white. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't work for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> and enough. we put their number above their head, so you could kind of figure relate out, to the yeah. shirt number, and suddenly. Yeah. You know, John Barnes was a number seven. He's running around, you know. Did you not have different heights? Or did I imagine that? No, that's too much work. (laughs) (laughs) So I used to think that Gaza was quite a bit shorter than some of the other players. That's what you do, you fill it in your head. I'm just filling it in in my head. exactly. It's different heading skills, you know. Uh, And are all the players on Sensible Soccer, have they all got specific skills for each thing in the... Yeah, that's, that's one thing we did. So we worked with a guy called Mike Hammond, who writes this UEFA football yearbook every year and was writing, I think, the Rothmans book beforehand. And um, he would research the whole of Europe, every player. So for him, it was like a good way to make extra money. We just told him the data format we needed. We need the player's name. You know, we need the position he plays, what shirt number he's got. And then these skills, just mark him out of 10. So and how, so it's just one person, bloke. One bloke. And then when we... Michael's dream job. Yeah. When, when, we, when, we, when we went to Swaz, since World of Soccer, we, he actually got another guy called Serge Van Hoof, who was based in Belgium, and Serge did all the non-European players, so like all the South Americans and Asians and whatever. Uh, and it, basically, there's one guy and another guy. And now now we're doing sociable soccer. We're using a guy called David White. It's interesting. So what Dave did, when we when we stopped doing sensible soccer a long time ago, he kept on updating the database of player names. Did he? Yeah, so somehow we became aware of Dave and just offered him a job. <laughs> Do you think, because you you're a Norwich fan, Yeah. did you ever go, could we just bump, can we bump down India up a bit? I think we might have. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, there's a few home teams in there. It's like Norwich, Liverpool, Sunderland were the main ones, which got a little... And with those player, like the player data, like how many attributes were there on a game seven. at that level? Seven. Do okay. you remember? So, so you got, you got um, tackling, passing, heading... Ball control, speed, finishing, which just means ability to slot it past the keeper, yeah. and shot power. And one of the things, sort of theory or conversation we've had a lot on this podcast is, in the early days of those types of games, pace and speed was really, really important. The, the, the two main stats in any football game are pace and goalkeeper skill. Yeah. Oh, God. oh really? Goalkeeper skills are number one. Like, if you turn the goalkeeper up to 100%, no one's got yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. so if you're key. playing central world of soccer now your first thing to do should be buy a good goalie yeah <laughs> never always, the first thing I did yeah. always goalkeeper skills the most dominating and speed speed and goalkeeper because yeah. I used to buy I used to buy Carl Viet for 250 grand from Crystal Palace <laughs> his speed was unbelievable <laughs> I'd have set way do you know like an NFL team will have like set plays or whatever yeah I'd have ways I think these are the ways that I find it easiest to score a goal yeah 
So pass to my fullback, and then the curved long ball up oh, to yeah. Colvin behind the defence. Yeah, and oh, then run right at up. the two centre backs, and then shoot down the middle of the goal, but bend it left or right. That would be my trademark goal. Like check back <laughs> at the edge of the area and curling it into the far corner. That's that was it. always that's it. That's the one I still do to this day. <laughs> <laughs> Or chip it in and nod it in with your head. Yeah. Can you yeah. play a football game without thinking like a programmer? I don't program. I've, I've oh, but like without thinking about a creative computer um, game. I can if it's getting really competitive, of course. I'm quite competitive, so, mm. yeah. So it's not like a busman's holiday. You're not there sort of going, oh. I play football. I mean, I still still play at my age. And when you're playing normal football, do you think of it like sensible soccer? No, <laughs> not at all. I think that I think it doesn't matter how good a football game is. It doesn't beat playing real football. It doesn't beat that being out there with. I don't know. On a co- it's cold now. <laughs> I'd rather be playing sensible soccer. I think. One Would of, you really? Yeah, one of I the think great so. things about sensible soccer was the humour, and that was across sensible uh-huh. software. And that really, you know, you just football games are very kind of a lot of them are quite pompous and quite about realism. Po faced. Po faced. Yes. <laughs> uh, so you'd have you'd have the fake teams, which would be like. So you'd have like the kebab shop and it'd be yeah. all the things. There was one that was like Hitler on the right wing and Stalin on the left wing. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't get away with that these days. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah, was, exactly. Was I that, remember that team. What was that? Was that pol- politicians or like dictators leaders or, or political leaders? <laughs> um, <laughs> did you enjoy doing that? Was there any you weren't allowed to do? Uh, well, okay, so we, we, we were like a, a bunch of guys working till three in the morning every day. <laughs> and, and, and the teams were the fun bit. So it's yeah. like, I would shout out, like, everyone's beavering away. And it's like, okay, we're going to do Essex girls. Anyone got any ideas? Like, Sharon, <laughs> Stacey, Kelly, Tyson <laughs> them in. That's it. That's how we did it. <laughs> and are you then going, oh, so what's her pace? What's Tracy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just, yeah, we just, just mix them up and change, you know, make them look a bit different to each other and... We had, we had a bit of feedback on, I think it was Instagram, someone had found that you had an EastEnders team. And I think the, the defence was like, Pat and Ethel were like the centre-backs. <laughs> and I was like, that really made me laugh all these years later. You must have been cracking up. Well, of course, it was really a lot of fun. It's like, because yeah, yeah. there's so much humour you can put into these stupid things. And, you know. And you think, because... It, was it rare that there was so much... Was that one of the kind of calling cards of your software company? I think it was just our nature as people. It's like... And, you know, an obs- this is a serious observation. Now, obviously, FIFA is a fierce competitor, and it's like, yeah. you know, I feel like at the moment, bringing a game back, like Ajax, it's like, you've taken our title, but we're going to come back. Yeah. You know? and, but I noticed people playing FIFA, for example, they're very serious. They're not having yeah. fun. I've been yeah. at conventions and observed it, you know, looking at it. It's a game where people don't enjoy themselves when they're playing it. And there's a whole bunch of different computer games out there where people have a lot of fun whilst they're playing. Yeah. You know? And I think Sensible Soccer was one of those games. You know, you, inv- you invite your mates around, you get some beers and a pizza or whatever, and you sit down and you have some fun. And you also have fast, some fun. You've lasted a game it's in three fast, minutes. Yeah. And... If you lose, it's three minutes. Yeah. It's the next one. You know, so, yeah. and you don't, you haven't got like, you can't Ronaldo's kill the game hair. in Sensible Soccer like someone can in FIFA. No. You can't just pass it around. And yeah. then sit although, on your although you would always get a player sent off if you'd committed a foul in the edge of the D, wasn't there? Like that, you could you could kill a game off accidentally like that. A few dodgy tackles on the edge of the area, and suddenly you're down to eight men. <laughs> you still got a chip on still, your shoulder. Still, I, I just wanted to bring up John. It's been eating me alive this whole interview. I think I think it's also the pace. Yeah, the pace is faster, and that pace, again, it's about psychological and body management. You play a game through your body. Yeah, you know. Different chemicals will kick in when you're playing at speed. You get more adrenaline. 
you know, a lot of it. Yeah. I don't find FIFA or Pro Evolution Soccer very adrenaline inducing. They're yeah. not fast enough. You know, you're not thinking on the fly. You know, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Did you so? Did you when you started Sensible Soccer? Like, uh, did you play it at different speeds and have to find? Like, yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, you you go and you need a range. It's actually quite tricky to get it right because it's like, what is our top top range of our top top super fast players? You know, you can play at a breakneck pace. Yeah. So, and then you've got the worst ones, and then the real difficulty with making a game like like uh, especially again with our new game to come back to that it's because you're starting you're building a team up you start at the bottom so you've got the, the slowest guys but you don't have to be so slow it's like unplayable yeah. then you've got the top guys who need to be noticeably better but not so fast it's like impossible to keep up with them mm. so getting these balances is actually quite tricky you know it takes a little while it takes about a year of the game being out for it to settle down and you know even with Sensible Soccer we did like a, a version after four or five months to update some things and that's how it works. Yeah. It's getting that balance right. I mean, if you look at FIFA and Pairs, like FIFA's been around since '93. Put it in perspective, it's 25 years. And when it came out, it? what did you think about? Because it had a weird view. Am I allowed to say on air what I think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh fuck. <laughs> 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 because they had the marketing muscle. I have a sub story about it. Uh, when we did the Sega Mega Drive version, so what we never quite know was the console versions. Because mm. it kind of, if FIFA had been a year later, we'd have cleaned up on the consoles. And actually, I remember we did, we submitted to Sega this version. And we had a language thing, we had to choose between French, English, German and Italian. And so we did this stuff. And for whatever reason, the the French and the Italian flags looked almost identical. It was like green, white, red, blue, white, red. Yeah, Yeah. So, in order to make them look different to each other... I flipped the Italian flag to make it red, white, green. And Sega rejected the build because I flipped the flag. Oh. And that meant that we came out two weeks after FIFA instead of a week before. Oh. And I've always wondered, is that just EA pulling a little trick? Oh. You know. I've, wow. I, you know. But yeah, that's, that's a little regret. <laughs> I'll never know the answer. Probably made no difference. But So then you come on to Central World of Soccer, uh-huh. which is huge. Yeah. Huge, like it's got what I've got it down here. It's got twenty-seven thousand players across one hundred and fifty countries. Correct. I was so excited when that came out because that element of being able to buy and sell players added onto it just felt like it felt like a dream. It was a perfect combination of at that time we could get away with using real player names mm. because no one had caught on to to it yet from a legal perspective mm. and putting that free market in just suddenly gave you literally this world of players. You know, some of my favourite teams, there's a team called Onthe Lobos, 11 Wolves, who were played in El Salvador Division 3. That's how much insane depth we went to. (laughs) And there was a team in India called Mills Paguara, and we had 16 players a squad, but they had 11 guys called Singh. So you could actually put them all on the pitch together and have a (laughs) team that everyone had the same surname, which I liked. And they properly researched? Yeah, all properly researched. In this case, by Serge Van Hoof, no less. Wow. <laughs> yeah. so, so one thing I'm pretty proud of with Sensible World of Soccer is how far we reach across the world. So, like, you'd have fans from Yugoslavia or from Argentina or from South Africa or whatever. And the important thing to remember is, in those days, no one was even acknowledging these countries existed in computer games. Yeah. So that's why we got, you know, I, I went to a, 
a World Cup about six years ago of sensible soccer in Germany. And there's like people wearing the Croatian national team things. <laughs> Amazing, you know. Yeah. This is because we acknowledged them before anyone did mm. in this world. So you get that back years later, people appreciate it. One of the great things about Sensible World of Soccer is the song, which you wrote. I can play you, it's on here. Play it. It. I'd like to hear Do you it. Hear again. the remix. 12 minutes. Yeah. Oh, wow. My favourite bit is the bass line just after the chorus. Boo, 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 boo. <laughs> anyway, that, that's not what we're here to discuss yeah, my favourite bit. Of that's, the, that's the Did remix you, for the new And version. was that amazing, writing the song for the... Yeah, I mean, myself and Richard Joseph had a really good songwriting relationship by then. So when Martin left and went to America... Uh, we were very lucky to replace one genius with another one. We got Richard Joseph, who did great work on a lot of games. And uh, we ended up writing a lot of music together. And again, it was good for me as a musician to get my music into something. So yeah. the same with Cannon Fodder, you know, putting music in there. I just went to Richard. The song with a, on Cannon idea. Fodder, which is a kind of reggae song. Yeah, exactly. War. Yeah. War never been so much fun. Yeah. That's the one we play at the end of the gigs in Poland where everyone pulls on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And dances. <laughs> Let's talk about Cannon Fodder because it isn't football, but it is. I'd say, I'd say that was my favourite computer game of my childhood. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Does that surprise you? That no, I'm... a lot of people like it. You know, I've always said. I mean, maybe you sit in the middle somewhere, but you know, there's there's like the boys at school who played football in the playground at playtime, and there's the boys who played war. Yeah. <laughs> and I've always seen the people who liked our games kind of divide in this way, and some people like both. So, no, a lot of people told me they, they like Cannon Fodder. And you put your... So, the, the, the your soldiers are named after lots... Well, there's loads of soldiers, but the first one's Jops, who's it's your... It's just us. It's just you, me. and then yeah. there's... So, was it weird being the main character in a computer? Not really, no. Because I remember... I didn't know it was you, but I was basically spending my whole time... Trying not jobs. to die, make you die. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for saving first me. Again two jewels and drops. Yeah. You saved them. because There they... was a real point of pride. You're like, oh, I want to get those two to the end. Like Everyone else is sacrificing. Yeah, them. good. Yeah. Sacrifice a lot. So Jules was basically the lead programmer, Jules Jameson. Yeah. Jobs was me because I was the lead designer on it. And then uh, Stu is Stu Cambridge, did all the art and so and so, and so across the yeah. team. And it was weird how the names came about. So the names came about because... We wanted you to care about characters dying. Yeah. And uh, we, we that came about by accident. So we used to have the, you ended the level and you got the medals. Everyone who survived the mission basically got ranked up. We did a... Yeah, it was great. And then you got the things, right? And then we for for experiment's sake, we said, let's put up the names of the people who died. And they came up and be like... Oh my God! How many people did we kill? We didn't even <laughs> notice they were there. No, they're dead. So, we, but we realised it was poignant. Yeah, it was quite mm. poignant. Like, and you get the little gravestones. Yeah, as well yeah. yeah. This is how it worked. So initially, this wasn't in the plan at all. And then we saw the names. And we're like, "Well, that's really good. We're going to make sure that's in the game." And you can't click to like jump the list. You, you're forced to look at all those names going up. <laughs> oh yeah. And then we added this sad song that I'd written when I was eighteen about losing a girlfriend ripped the words out <laughs> <laughs> and, and Richard did a great remix of it and stuck it in so it's this sad song of things going up yeah yeah. and then to up the ante we put the we had this screen with a queuing up to go to war 
So we had this big empty hill. And we're like, what can we do with it? We can add flowers. Let's, let's add graves. So it's obvious it's graves. And then the next touch is, uh, depending on what rank you were when you died, we give you a better grave. <laughs> and, and it kind of works like that. And so at the end, it looks like this real parody of wars being planned. Yeah. and this, you know, But it came, it evolved yeah, from the process yeah. of making the game, you know, like many games do. Did it, um, and the, it had the poppy on the front, and it, but it said not endorsed by the British Legion or something like that. Oh, this, is, this was because we put a poppy on the front and actually launched the game on Armistice Day mm. and thought it was fitting because the game does yeah. kind of acknowledge people dying in war. Um, somehow the star got hold of this story before the game was launched and said that this computer game was going to disrespect the people who fought in the wars by putting a poppy on the front cover yeah. and it's a flagrant disrespectful thing the Royal British Legion wrote to us and said you can't do that that poppy you've put on the front is our copyright what the copyright of a poppy yeah the poppy like the plastic yeah, yeah. poppy uh, and they um, fined us so that we had to pay them 400 quid 400 quid no 500 quid I think it was anyway <laughs> I've never bought a poppy since I used to always buy poppies I, I upfronted like 200 quid <laughs> of poppies <laughs> So yeah, yeah. So that that happened. That's it was a great game. I really loved it. Yeah. Another one I remember is you is you'd have these crossovers. So you, I'm trying to remember this right because obviously years ago there'd be yeah. demos on the front of magazines. Yeah, demo discs. Little yeah. versions of there was a one called Unsensible Soccer or something. Yeah. So what what were it? Were you just making these for fun and giving well, them to magazines? Yeah, these are these are actually good promotional tools. So basically, we would spin the game off the existing engine of a game. So the very best one was actually one called Cannon Soccer. Yeah. Uh, did anyone play? Yeah, Cannon I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So Cannon Soccer, it's like sensible soccer. Yeah. But the guys are dressed in military uniform, and the ball is a grenade. Oh yes, I did play that one. So yeah. basically, every thirty <laughs> seconds, the ball would explode and kill everyone in its vicinity. So you're playing the football game, but you get to a point where you don't want the ball. Yeah. <laughs> that was brilliant. You know, oh, that's fun. And there was one where it was apples and pears. Or apples something. versus oranges with a nut oh. as the ball, yeah. <laughs> I remember that one. And was there one that was like cannon fodder? It was like one of those, like Defender, was it, where the game where there would be this surge of players running towards your goal and you had to, like, blow them up. Yeah, that was kind of like flipped the other way around with the cannon fodder engine. Yeah, with football players, but on a football pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So we, we kind of mixed and matched it, yeah. <laughs> and and that was the relationship with the Mega Power was great. So yeah. they would like these kind of things that helped them to sell the magazines. Obviously, it worked yeah. really well. Yeah. Was there any ideas that you kind of knocked about, nearly got made that didn't quite make it to the magazine? Like, we, well, there's uh, a lot of games that we we had ideas for that we didn't make. I mean, it's it's inevitable in any creative industry. Mm. You have ideas that don't quite get off the drawing board, and yeah, is there the one the the one that got away the one well, where sex, you drugs, and rock and roll is the one that got away right for me in my career because I spent four years making it right. What was that? I don't know. It was a basically kind of like a, a sort of point and point click. click. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was about you're a lead singer in a band and well, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, and the guy was like some kind of like a SpongeBob kind of character. Right. Like he was. It doesn't matter how much it gets kicked down, it bounces up again, and then it gets kicked down again. So it was quite a lot of fun. Kind of following on from where Leisure Suit Larry was, but with right. a bit more balls to it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And what uh, after four years means that you go, this isn't going to happen. What happened after that, after four years, was that our lead programmer hadn't managed to make the engine work properly. So we had like 10 artists doing art for him. There's, there's technical problems. Uh, and um, our publisher had gone from being with Warner, who we signed to initially, 
to GT. They sold to GT. GT were a Bible Belt American company with a game about snorting cocaine and shagging people <laughs> and recording booths. <laughs> so they didn't really want it. So we had to try and resell it. And it was, a, again, this is pre-GTA. We're talking 90, pre the more risque GTA. Yeah. So trying to resell it in 96, 97 was a bit hard. And uh, we did have an offer, but only to sell it in UK and we couldn't do it. But I'd written 36, me and Richard written, no, sorry, 32 tracks, full music for it. So it's a big music-based game Ah. with all the videos and everything else. So that was a bit gutting. There you go. You win some, you lose some. Yeah, it feels like you have this kind of, you had this house gym period at Sensible Software, which was Megalomania, Sensible Soccer, Cannon Fodder, Sensible World of Soccer, Whiz Kid, I'd throw in Whiz there as Kid, well yeah. as an artistic piece uh, if you've seen it. And Cannon yeah. Fodder. And then there's also, well, there's again Cannon Fodder 2 as Cannon well. Cannon Fodder 2, Sensible Golf was starting to. What happened then, uh, the game's quality starts to go down a little bit. Mm. We got too greedy. Like, we're suddenly worth a lot of money. <laughs> like, after this seven or eight years of not making so much money, we're like, yeah, we'll sign everything, every deal we can. But we stretch ourselves too thin, and then it starts to show. And then also, what happened was we got stuck in 2D longer than nearly every other company because we we were probably the best Amiga developer or the most popular yeah. in Europe, in the world, I could say, yeah. for that period of time. So we were the last to move on to the new technology. So when we came to do 3D and we did the Sensible Soccer 98, it came out, which wasn't so great, uh, Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, another game could have a nice day. We signed a three-game deal with Warner. Yeah. and uh, But we hadn't touched 3D ever. So we're like coming into it two years behind the curve. Uh, and that eventually bit us. The technology moving is what bites you in the end in this industry one way or another. So you were kind of in the right place at the right time at the start of the 90s and then in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, because, you know, it's like anything. If, you, if, you're, if you're like at the peak, you don't want it to stop. Mm. But the guys who are less down the peak, they're looking for alternative things to do. And the alternative thing was the 3D kind of games. Mm. So some people had got the jump on us massively, you know, but can't complain and we had a good number of years at the top with Cannon Fodder 2 and my brother's when he heard mm-hmm. I was interviewing you he said he needs to ask a question which okay. was there was a competition in an Amiga magazine mm-hmm. in which you could design levels for Cannon Fodder 2 okay and he entered and he didn't win <laughs> oh no and he wonders if did, do you remember this and did they use anyone's levels a, I do not remember it. So <laughs> I, can't, I can't answer the second question. <laughs> sorry, sorry to, to crush your brother's no. dream. Pleading the fifth. <laughs> yeah, actually, you, you're talking about that period. You know, when these games were coming out. There's a period between June '92, when Sensible Soccer was launched, and June '95. A combination of Sensible Soccer, Cannon Fodder, Cannon Fodder Two, Swass. We were number one for 52 weeks. Wow. Have a three-week period wow. in that's, the UK. That's, that's amazing. Insane. Yeah, so that's that's the level of like you're like a band that's hit its peak where all the games are you know the yeah. songs are hit for a while. So yeah, it's nice to have had that. You know, do you feel like do you when you think back, does it feel do you feel like what an amazing experience to live through? Yeah, I mean, it's we were lucky as Sensible Software to have started on something which was just taking off, which could have easily not taken off. Yeah. And we could have easily not been there at the start, but we happened to be the right place at the right time and we, we, we rode that thing. And you've got to accept that th- sometimes it goes up and sometimes it goes down. And that is just the nature of, yeah. of doing creative stuff. You know, in the end, if you stay in the game, 
long enough, you can maybe have a success again. You know, that's yeah. how it works. But yeah, that that perfect combination of great creative stuff and a good business era for us coinciding yeah. worked really, really well for those years. Yeah. Um, but we, last question, end as we always do. If I could give you a button and if you were to press it, you'd go back to the 1st of January 1990. Would you do it? 1990? Is yeah. this a, well, it's same? a 90s football podcast. It's a relatively arbitrary date. Uh, you can would go I back. do it? No. I'll give you the option of a few okay. years earlier. If I go back, I'll probably fuck it up second time around. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've ever had that answer deal, deal with piracy a bit better. <laughs> no, I'm largely happy. Oh, um, lovely. John Hare, thank you very much. <laughs> That was uh, John Hare. Um, I genuinely found that absolutely fascinating. And also, I'm going to say it, it really made me think that the computer games period at that point was a very romantic, amateurish world, a bit like the football world, but almost more, it felt very kind of punk and DIY, didn't it? Yeah. I would have loved to have been working on that game at that time. Yeah. It feels like you'd have been... It would have been so exciting to work at Sensible Software and their kind of um, ethos and their humour. That was a great time. It was a great company and what they did will forever be remembered. Um, And that brings us into the quiz. It's the old familiar favourite starting 11 in honour of our guest this week. Something a little bit different. I have picked two fictional teams from Sensible World of Soccer. So for this matchup, it is kebab shop versus cheese board. Oh, I never used to like the ones that were just silly stuff like pencil case, but like the cast of EastEnders. I love that. If it was based on people. Yeah. Oh, right. I, I you didn't like it, but like it was objects. The, yeah. version of the, game, the version of the game I can access to get these didn't have any of those, unfortunately. Oh. Uh, this is, this is okay. tricky. Uh, Josh, you can go first. Stilton. Correct. Um, and what am I, I? So what am I? I'm a kebab shop. No, no, no you can go for either. Oh, cool. Yep. Um, so I'm going to go with what I consider a safe bet, Donna. Correct. Um, Brie. <laughs> this is great. Uh, yeah, Brie is. Uh, I'll give you. The, I'll give you the positions. Actually. So, so what, what was the first one you said? Sorry, what was the first cheese one? Stilton. Uh, Stilton is um, a uh, centre back in uh, yeah. in a three three man defence. Uh, he must be. In, there must be someone injured. He's playing out of position. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, bring Bree is a is a tricky left winger. Yeah, uh, Donna's up front, isn't it? Uh, Donna's in goal, mate. In goal. Yeah. Up front, chips. Uh, chips is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> you got, you got to say what position you think it is in as yeah, well. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Go. So, what have you said? Chips is up front. Yeah. Uh, Chips is your classic box to box midfielder number eight. <laughs> of course, it is versatile. Um, so, Walter Raleigh attested. I love the the different in the difference in class between me and Skull is shown in which two teams we're working our way through. <laughs> oh, Edam. Yeah, Dutch. Total, obviously, total footballer generally. But if you had to nail down a football position, a fullback. Edam uh, is in the starting eleven and is another one of the three centre backs. 
I'm picturing more of a sweeper, a kind of Matthias yeah, Samarov. Yeah, exactly, yeah. A bit of continental flair. Um, oh, I, I think I'm going to go for a bit of flair here. I'm, think, I'm thinking of a 90s cheese. I'm thinking Dairy Lee, my right midfield. What, the cheese board? When you have Dairy like, surely. Would you have Dairy Lee on the cheese board? The, the class distinctions are getting <laughs> wrong. <laughs> it's 90s, yeah. isn't it? Uh, unfortunately, Dairy Lee did not play. Wow. Blind. Cheddar? Uh, you want to pick a position Sorry, for Cheddar? Number nine. Cheddar did play, and Cheddar was playing at right back. Oh, wow. Uh, Is he going to go back to the kebab shop? I think I'm going to stung by cheese. I'm going to say uh, a Kofta and a left back. Kofta was playing, and he was playing left back. <laughs> Astonishing. <laughs> Joe Walks, I think, it's it's a bit rough, isn't it? I think left backs were a bit rough in the nineties. So what what's that your Julian Dix, your Stuart? Yeah, Peer. Julian Dix. Julian Dix was a kebab it'd be a cofter. I just fear it's too early for falafel. It's certainly <laughs> too early for halloumi chronologically. Um so I'm gonna go with Cheshire. Correct. What oh, position? Wow. A really nineties cheese, Cheshire. Really not a nice cheese, too crumbly for my tastes. Um Cheshire's a very bland cheese of so defence. Left back? Correct. Yeah, I knew it. Kebab shop's getting quite hard now. We've done the, done the big stuff. You'd expect to see a burger. I think that burger's going to be in defence. I think I'm going to have to ask you to be slightly more specific than burger. <laughs> I'm guessing <laughs> there, is burger? Some che- there is some cheese atop it. Even more specific than that. Quarter pounder with cheese. I will accept quarter pounder. Good. Uh, quarter pounder is uh, a number seven. Camembert. Sadly not. Oh, oh, too early. No one was eating a wheel of camembert back in the day. So we're both on the final life here. Um, I reckon we're going to see some chicken nuggets, and I think they might even be playing up top. Incorrect. Oh. oh. I went first as well, didn't I? So that's yeah. it. Yeah. So Josh wow. wins. Oh, oh. Delighted to win. There we go. That was a great game. Sensational. That's one of our best ever games. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Let's end with the uh, goal-scoring superstar hero. Okay, that's it for this week. We'll be back tomorrow with our Quickly Kevin Film Club and we'll be reviewing that magnificent film about FIFA and what a great job they're doing. It's called United Passions. came out in 2015 just before the FIFA scandal and it is a gripping watch. Really looking forward to that. And then next week, next Monday, our guest will be Richard Shaw. Finally, more Coventry City representation as well as Crystal Palace. So do join us for that. Until then, Robbie Slater. See you later.
passes to Morgan, passes to Gibson, oh, it's in the back of the net, I don't believe it, the score! This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.